about science and the Dharma in the last millennium. And just to make sure everyone can hear me. Um, I reflected how, um, through our curiosity and creativity, we've discovered and invented so many amazing things. And yet, as Gil was talking about last night, um, when we look around us, we see a lot of people rushing around and just as much suffering as ever there was before. <coughs> and we seem to create as many problems as we solve. And um, this has been in my office for a little while, and it's the history of medicine. 2000 BC, here, eat this root. 1000 AC, that root is heathen. Here, say this prayer. 1850 AD, that prayer is superstition. Here, drink this potion. 1940 AD, that potion is snake oil. Here, swallow this pill. 1985, that pill is ineffective. Here, take this antibiotic. 2000, that antibiotic doesn't work anymore. Here, eat this root. And so basically, we've sort of come full circle <laughs> in some ways in medicine. And we're, but we're still looking for health and happiness and freedom. But unfortunately, what often motivates us and what equally gets in the way are the famous three that the Buddha talked about, the three defilements of greed, hatred, and delusion. And it's our desire whether it's for profit or fame or wanting more of it faster and easier, or our aversion, our inability to tolerate discomfort, or the delusion of simply not realizing that we just don't know. One of the things we're a bit deluded about is time, which we're either killing or never have enough of. I'm sure you've realized that already. You can't wait for the bell to ring for the sitting to end. Or maybe you wish that the bell wouldn't ring so you could have a longer lunch break or a longer snooze. We try to resolve our problems according to our assumptions about time and space. And yet even our top phys physicists are almost certain that space and time are illusory, primitive notions to be replaced by something more sophisticated. Julian Barber, who's a theoretical physicist, writes in The New Scientist, Time seems to be the most powerful force, an irresistible river carrying us from birth to death. But I think time is an illusion. Paradoxically, we might be able to explain the mysterious arrow of time, the difference between past and future, by abandoning time. He goes on to say, The universe is a vast, still soup, in which all possible moments coexist. Quantum fluctuations in the fabric of reality bind together a special selection of these instants in an order that we perceive as the flow of time. But it's thoroughly illusory. And that's pretty well what the Buddha was teaching 2,500 years ago. And he said, where water earth, fire, and air no footing find. There shine no stars. No sun is there displayed. There gleams no moon. No darkness there is seen. So when the sage, the brahmana, by wisdom of his own self, hath pierced unto the truth, from form and no form, pleasure and pain, he's freed. So you see, the Dharma is timeless. The essential truth of things doesn't change. With our split-second technologies and our economic system that measures success by short-term gain, we're increasingly cut off from the rhythm of life and from the past and the future as well. And when we're cut off from the past and future, 
it's difficult to consider the long-term results of our actions. Now you might think we keep telling you to be in the present, but the Buddha taught not to be attached to the present, to be present, but to allow all possibilities of time. Ajahn Chah said, this is to Ajahn Sumedho, Buddha Dharma is not to be found in moving forwards, nor in moving backwards, nor in standing still. That, Sumedho, is the law of non-abiding. But we often think in narrative time. A narrative time is the time that marks the history of one's own life story or self, the time that carries and recreates hopes and ideals, plans and ambitions, goals and visions, the subtle time that can speed up or slow down, expand or collapse, transcend or concentrate according to its interest. Each of us only has a certain amount of time. What do we want to do with it? How best to use our time? In what the Buddha called this precious human birth. Paul Tsongan said, no man ever said on his deathbed, I wish I'd spent more time at the office. So how do we want to spend this time? Each of us has arrived here in a human body. And being human means we get to go around in this body that gets sick, grows older, and eventually dies. Bodies plus the passage of time equals aging. So here I am, not able to sit cross-legged anymore and wearing glasses. And we can't get around it much though we'd like to. Western society is so obsessed with an ideal body, and there's more options than ever for altering our physical appearance. Plastic surgery is a huge industry. And we don't like our aging brains either. I found um, on the net this um, smart, uh, smart drugs. And um, one of my patients asked me to look it up. And so I phoned, I found a huge list of all these drugs that you can use to increase your brain power. And I phoned the 1-800 number. And this guy asked him you know, about this particular drug. And this guy said to me, well, you know those spots that you have on your hands? And I looked down and said, yes. And he said, well, that's happening in your brain, too. <laughs> and this is what this drug will get rid of. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but what else the drug will do to my brain, <laughs> I don't like to think about. <laughs> so um, it's hard for us to accept that our memories are going and that um, it, things don't stay the same. And we're constantly judging and comparing our bodies. And we're often failing to actually live in them. We look outside of ourselves for how we should look and how we should feel. So just close your eyes for a moment. And just ask yourself, how have I treated my body so far in my life? What has my attitude been when my body's been ill? In what ways have I not been accepting my body? And we realize when we do that, that our society doesn't help us very much with being in our bodies as they change and they age and they become ill. We don't treat ourselves very often with kindness. But the very things that we're so earnestly trying to escape from, old age, sickness and death, are what motivated the Buddha in the first place. And it was by turning towards them rather than away from them that he achieved liberation. 
This is from the Madhyamanakaya. Being struck by the arrow of craving, afflicted by aging and death, humanity is in urgent need of help. The remedy the Buddha brings us as the surgeon for the world is the Dharma, which discloses both the truth of our existential plight and the means by which we can heal our wounds. And the first truths that the Buddha taught are the Four Noble Truths. That there is suffering, that suffering is to be apprehended. That the cause of suffering is to be abandoned, which was about understanding the origin of suffering. The cessation of suffering is to be realized. That there is an end to suffering and that the path is to be cultivated, that the way to suffering was laid out. And for each of these noble truths, he described three aspects. The first one, pariyati, was simply the statement that there is suffering. And the second, patipati, was the prescription that suffering should be understood. This is just with regard to the first noble truth. And the third, Pariveda, was the result of that understanding, that it's been understood. So if we begin with the first noble truth, just as small unicellular beings move away from an obnoxious stimulus, it's our instinct, a deeply conditioned one, that causes us to run away from suffering, to resist it. It's at a very deep level that we move away. And yet the first noble truth asks us to look at it, to understand it instead of just reacting, to hold it and embrace it. And it isn't easy, even though we care and we want to relieve suffering in ourselves and in the world. We live in a crazy, sped-up world where more time and resources are spent on weapons of destruction and on prisons and in fact, in causing suffering than on understanding suffering. As a healthcare professional, I see nurses with too many patients to look after, not enough time to just be with people. And the nurses suffer too, because they can't do what they're trained to do. They can't fix the suffering around them. And often we can't change our pain or the worlds. Saki Santarelli says, within every healthcare practitioner lives a wounded one, and in every patient, every sick and suffering human being abides a powerful inner healer. And to contact that inner healer, we have to stay with and examine and understand our own suffering. And this is from Rumi. Trust your wound to a teacher's surgery. Flies collect on a wound. They cover it. Those flies of your self-protecting feelings, your love for what you think is yours. Let a teacher wave away the flies and put a plaster on the wound. Don't turn your head. Keep looking at the bandaged place. That's where the light enters you. Don't turn your head. Keep looking at the bandaged place. That's where the light enters you. And as we begin to look closer, we begin to recognize the second noble truth of the causes and origins of suffering. And that their attachment to three kinds of desire. Desire for sense pleasures. That's the I want. The wanting that arises as a result of contact with the six sense doors of taste and touch and seeing and hearing and thoughts and... (laughs) I missed one. The desire to become, whether it's to become important or wealthy or seen, and the desire to get rid of, 
to get rid of what's uncomfortable, whether it's our anger, our jealousy, suffering. And we see as we look closer that all that speediness and all that reaching for more and more stimuli is a way of avoiding the inner void, the inner sense of emptiness. And we also notice that the cause of suffering is attachment, not the desire itself. We can have the desire to relieve suffering in the world, or the desire to awaken, or to understand our universe, to express creativity. And those are all wholesome desires. But it's when we're attached to them, when we can't accept suffering, and can't accept not being able to relieve, to relieve it, that it causes suffering. Or perhaps when our motivation is to become a healer, or, or to become a wealthy healer, then it eventually leads to more suffering. Unfortunately, the motivation behind the healthcare system and a lot of the scientific community is too often greed of some kind. Um, there's a, a human genome project at the moment um, which is attempting to um, break down the entire human genome into all specific genes and parts of genes in very tiny places, and it's a publicly funded thing. And the idea is that um, more knowledge will be come about to cure diseases, to even they, they say to um, cure the disease of aging. And um, pa parents will be able to genetically select their children. So there's very strange potential in this, but it's a, but it's a government-funded um, project. And this businessman called Craig Venter, some of you may, may have read this, um, has got a super computer which is doing this process much faster. And he is um, setting up contracts with drug companies and various other agencies um, to get the information out, the entire breakdown of the genome out, before the government-funded project can do it. Um, and um, obviously, this, if there is any benefit to be gained, will cost those who might benefit from it lots of money and make him very rich in the process. So over the millennium, we've invented a lot more things to be attached to and created a lot more problems to have aversion to and to want to get rid of. So what's the prescription for this? The prescription is to let go of desire, which doesn't mean getting rid of or identifying with desire. I'm a bad person for having desire. It simply means that by recognizing and understanding desire, we can release it. It isn't the wanting itself that causes the suffering. It's just a condition in the mind, just like having an itch or having busy thinking. And it passes. It's our grasping and identification that causes the suffering. I was on a retreat once, um, and I come to a place on this retreat of actually getting quite peaceful. And um, it was getting towards the end of the sitting before lunchtime when I entered this extremely blissful and peaceful state. And then the lunch bell rang. And this was a retreat where no meal was served after the noonday meal. And there often wasn't exactly enough food for everybody. And so this thought entered my beautiful, peaceful state of food. <laughs> But also, I really was attached to this beautiful, peaceful state. And so suffering was created for a number of moments about which I was going to let go of. And then I saw that I was wanting. And I just stayed with that state of wanting until it got bigger and bigger and bigger, until all there was was wanting. It wasn't my wanting anymore. It was universal wanting. And in seeing that, humor arose and compassion. And um, you know, I was pretty late for dinner, <laughs> lunch. <laughs> but it was a very valuable lesson in just allowing the state of wanting and seeing that uh, it could get huge, and that by not stopping it, by allowing it to reach its peak like a wave, it passed through 
and another state arose. What does it mean to let go, to let go of desire? I was driving in the car once with my son, and the Dalai Lama, um, we were playing one of his tapes, and in this tape he was talking about um, Western wanting, and he was talking about how um, he was being driven along the street somewhere, um, I think in New York, and they were going past stores of electronic equipment, which he loves. And he saw things, and he said he didn't even know what they were for, but he wanted them. (laughs) And um, so he talked about letting go of wanting. And so after um, some time, you know, my son was really impressed by this. And, you know, he said how wonderful the Dalai Lama was. And then he said, but mom, how do you let go of wanting? And so how do we do that? What does it mean to let go? Letting go means letting things be as they are, leaving things as they are. It's not a throwing away or a trying to push away. It's leaving things just as they are, letting each breath be just as it is, whether it's a controlled breath or a short breath, not needing to do anything to it. Recognizing what's happening without judgment. This is just wanting. It's not my wanting. This is just aversion. How does it feel in the body? What's happening right now? So we use the light of mindfulness, of paying attention, to see how we create suffering And we begin to see that any movement of mind, whether it's wanting or disliking, can create suffering. Anytime we have contact with one of the six sense doors, there's a possibility for wanting to arise, an identification and grasping. So next time you're in some state of discomfort and resistance, you might want to just reflect, what am I clinging to right now? There must be something that I'm clinging to, whether it's wanting to push away the discomfort or hold on to the pleasant. Just make some kind of gesture to release. Scan the inner domain. Where's the attachment? What's the point of friction? And as we begin to let go, we see that there's avoidable pain and there's unavoidable pain. And when we don't add the reaction and the identification, it's just pain, here as it is. Can we be with just the pain in the knee without adding, it's going to last all sitting, I should never have sat in this position? What if it doesn't go away? Can we just be with the sensation without the story? 50% of our suffering, 50% if any, in any situation of suffering, um, 50% of it is the pain itself, and 50% of it is our reaction, unavoidable. So when we ask ourselves, can I be with this without adding anything? And if we have added anything, can we be with that in a caring way? Oh, it's just adding, rather than having a self-judgment about having added. And when we can be with things fully, without adding, without clinging, or having compassion for the adding and clinging, it's a powerful protection from continuing to re-traumatize ourselves with all the stuff that arises. And it's through contemplating an understanding attachment that we can begin to get the insight and actually experience the third noble truth, that there is cessation of suffering, that it actually does, there is actually the possibility of release. And that in fact it's our natural state. Beneath all this, We do rest in that state. 
When the Buddha first gave the teaching on the first noble truth, there was one disciple, Kandana, who realized enlightenment on receiving the teaching. And the Buddha called him Anakandana, Kandana who knows. And what Kandana realized and what led to his being free was that all is subject to all that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. In other words, it's impermanent and it's not self. We have a lot of trouble with impermanence. Even though we know things change, we all know things change. You've seen them change all day. We fight it. We want to prolong the pleasant. And we want the unpleasant to end. And science and technology are really caught in that. We fight, we fight it. We want to prolong life at all costs. We want to prolong things that we like. And we've given ourselves so many choices about life, both in creating it and in ending it. We want to control the creation of life. We want to control when we die and when our loved ones die. I had a patient whose husband was in a coma following a severe heart attack that had really damaged his brain. And um, she wasn't able to allow him to be taken off life support for several years. And so she would just keep looking after him, even though there was absolutely no hope of him ever regaining consciousness. She couldn't allow him to die. And it reminded me of the parable of the mustard seed. And this is the story about Kisa Gautami, a woman whose son died, and she couldn't accept his death. And she carried the body around with her, um, desperate for someone to bring him back to life. And she went to the Buddha for the Buddha to restore life to her son, to give her some remedy that would cure him. And the Buddha told her to go to every house in the village and that if she could collect a mustard seed from every house where no one in that house had had a member of their family touched by death, if she would bring a mustard seed back from one of those houses, she, he could cure her son. And so, of course, she wasn't able to do this. Every house that she went to knew of someone who had died. And so she had a great realization and she said, no village law, no law of market town, no law of a single house is this. Of all the world and all the world of gods, this only is the law, that all things are impermanent. We've opened up so many Pandora's boxes with our new technologies. People are giving, given increasingly difficult choices and consequently expectations. Nowadays you can detect anything about a baby in utero. And I had a patient who the ultrasound showed that the baby was quite significantly um, deformed in some way, had, had a, an internal problem. And she was told that surgery could be done in utero to, that possibly could heal this. But it, ma it might mean that the baby would have to be on an external heart support called ECMO after it was born. And many very painful and traumatic things would have to happen to this baby with no guarantee that the baby would survive. Or she could simply terminate the pregnancy, simply. Or she could continue with the pregnancy and the baby would be stillborn. And that was an awful choice for someone to have to make and a lot of suffering for, for those, for having to deal with those choices. And so we've created a lot of unsolvable problems for people. And at the other end of creating life, it's now possible, um, you know, and you've all heard these stories. This one was um, a woman in her late 50s whose daughter couldn't have children 
and the woman in her late 50s, she was 58 or 59, agreed to be a surrogate mother. And so she was implanted with a number of eggs um, so that she could have a child on behalf of, for her daughter. And of course, then there's a multiple pregnancy. And so then the woman is told, well, we can selectively kill some of these embryos in order that you only have one baby. And so yet again, people are given and put into these positions of creating and destroying life that's very, very complicated. And often we see that people are afraid of pain more than they're afraid of death. And what they're afraid of is that the pain and the suffering are going to be unbearable. I had someone, a woman with ALS, ask me to help her to die. She wanted me to administer something so she would die. But all I could promise to do was that I would help her be with her suffering. I couldn't fix it, but she wouldn't be alone. And by being able to fully hear her, she began to see that she could trust that through all the supportive people around her, there would be help for that, that the suffering wasn't unbearable. We don't have much practice working with pain or tolerating the unpresent. We want to go from pleasant to pleasant. Even when we know that attachment to the three kinds of desire is futile, because it's all going to cease. Even attachment to the desire to die is a setup. When my mother was dying um, a couple of years ago, at this time of year, Christmas, um, she, had, she had cancer. She decided that she would just have a very tiny taste of turkey and then she would, this would be her last Christmas and she would go to sleep and she wouldn't wake up the next morning. This is what she was going to do. Of course, I was you know, with her during the night, but lo and behold, her eyes opened and she said, what happened? <laughs> Why didn't I die? And I sort of said to her, well, it, it's not like that. It's sort of like having a baby. Some people have births that go really fast, just like some people die just like that. Some people have labors that are really long, and some people's bodies take a long time to shut down and to die. And through understanding how each system of the body gradually shut down, that that was a natural process, she became less afraid, and as the days went by, she was able to let go and see that this is just this part of the body letting go. This is just this part of the body shutting down. This is how it happens. This is what it's like. It's okay. So that we can begin to allow a natural process to occur without fighting it, without pushing it away. So when we can lay aside our desires and allow impermanence, that's when suffering ceases. That's when it's possible to experience cessation. And we, we, you're doing it moment to moment as you sit. Each breath arises and we let go of it. Each thought arises and we let it go by. Sometimes to do that, we have to allow our experience fully into our consciousness. Normally when something unpleasant arises, whether it's boredom or fear, we pick up the phone, we munch a snack, we read a book, or we contract somewhere in our body to shut that unpleasantness out. And here as we're sitting with our mindfulness, we're beginning to allow what we've suppressed. Some of you may have noticed as you start to settle that unfinished business starts to arise or discomfort in the body starts to arise. Things that we've been pushing away start to show themselves. 
but we're learning to be with the things that we couldn't bear. Our physical pain, our reactions, all those things. We're learning to open the contracted places. I began to learn to work with pain after meeting Stephen Levine some 12 or more years ago. He showed me it was possible to investigate pain with full attention, to explore the edges gently, and to soften and treat with compassion, and to open to feeling it softly rather, contra- rather than contracting against it. And when I did that, I found out that there was a spaciousness, there was a natural allowing, that naturally we can do this. Slowly, as we open our minds to our suffering, even if it's just opening a little bit, when we do that, we can see that it's embracing it. It's in the act of embracing it, of caring for it, of allowing it, that it ceases. And simply saying, I care about this pain. Sometimes I've had the experience um, and I'm sure you've had this experience too, of someone that I'm seeing being in a great deal of suffering that there isn't an answer for. There's a problem that there just isn't an answer for. And I catch myself trying to fix it, trying to find an answer, and it doesn't work. You know, the kind of thing where you're giving advice to somebody and they keep saying, yes, but, and you know that (laughs) That's not really what they're needing, is to be told advice. Or you've been on the receiving end. More and more now I've come to see that it's when I can just sit there and fully allow all of the suffering that that person's in, all of who they are in that moment. And when I notice my contraction against it, my trying to hold out, and I can ask myself, what am I holding out? What am I resisting? What's going on that I can't allow all of what this person is feeling? That it's possible then to allow that, to make space, that there's enough space for all their despair, all their hopelessness, whatever it happens to be. And when that person, and when when I've been on the receiving end, when you feel fully understood, when you feel that somebody actually got it, the suffering feels embraced and feels held. And you're able to let go of some of the burden. Somehow in our society, over the years, we've come to have a concept of ourselves as just this space that's held by our physical bodies. And in times past, in other ages, um, people wrote about their there's more connection with the fields, with the trees, with the universe. You didn't just end here. There was more of a sense of spaciousness. But because we're holding everything in this, just this space, when something really powerful, a powerful pain, a powerful emotion, a powerful distress arises, it has to be contained, we think, in just this physical space. And because we're receiving so much stimulus in our world, we're taking in so much, it's no wonder we feel that we just can't take it anymore. Because we're trying to control it, and contain it in a space where it's not containable. And so just having that sense of spaciousness, of not ending here, of allowing it to be held, it becomes possible for all that to be held. And also, when we're no longer trying to fix, when we're fully accepting, that in itself leads to compassion. When we're trying to fix, we're inferring that something isn't something or someone isn't okay. And we see very clearly when we start to allow and we start to release in those contracted places that fear and pain are also impermanent. They're not self, and that they cease. And that in the embracing of them, as they cease, a peacefulness arises and a clarity, and there are moments of freedom.
And of course, as you've also noticed, you'll have moments of freedom and then back will come the mind with the story again. And then you're grasping again. Because the habit is very strong. But the moment we're aware of the grasping again, oh, it's just grasping. It's just holding on again. Just seeing it will begin to dissolve it. Everything that arises ceases. Cessation is just a natural ending of anything that has arisen. It isn't an, an annihilation, it isn't a rejection, and it isn't a throwing away. When the Buddha says abandon unwholesome thoughts, he's referring to a releasing, not an aversion. And when we see how much energy we put into avoiding feeling, when we stop running so fast and turn towards our feelings and allow and embrace them, it frees up all that energy. Energy for creativity, for insight, for wisdom. And it reveals our own natural inner state of spaciousness and peacefulness and compassion. When we're constantly busy and avoiding feelings, when we never make, give ourselves time to look at them, we can never be free. And as we slow down and allow the spaces between stimuli, we begin to see what's true for ourselves. Each time as we sit, we can be with something difficult and embrace it, even if it's just an itch. We're training ourselves to embrace the unbearable and to open the door wider to the possibility of freedom. But staying with feelings of shatteredness and of falling apartness without knowing what's next isn't easy. It takes courage and faith and it takes gentleness and acceptance to fully allow things into our hearts. And unfortunately it also requires patience which is something that I particularly have a hard time with. The healing process takes time. The healing of ourselves, the healing of the world. It comes a little bit at a time. It happens over time. It happens over years. And the Buddhas of the world understood that. And in fact, Many of the, um, when, when we read the stories of the Bodhisattva and of the disciples of the Buddha, they devoted successive lifetimes to their practice and the, to the development of the ten paramis or perfections of a Buddha. Generosity and morality, renunciation and wisdom and effort and patience and truthfulness, and resolve, and equanimity, and loving-kindness. In fact, it, I think it was hundreds of thousands of eons and four incalculables that, that those, those were the numbers of lifetimes that these would be practiced for before someone would reach enlightenment. So we've got a long way to go. But the Buddha also taught that we can realize freedom from suffering in this very life, drishtadharma nirvana. And we can have more and more moments of cessation as we practice. And each time you sit, each moment of mindfulness, each moment of coming back to the breath, of being with the breath, and of releasing to the next breath, is an awareness of arising and of cessation. And we all want to relieve suffering, our own and each other's. The Bodhisattva vow, let me be born in a place where there's trouble and where there's suffering, so I can best help those who are suffering, is one of pure intention, no self, no aspiration, no need for recognition. 
and when we're not identified with success or failure, when they're no longer so important, motivation becomes clearer. And we begin to do things because they're the right thing to be doing at this time and place, rather than out of a sense of personal ambition or fear. And this is Rumi. Can you patiently wait until the mind settles and the water is clear? Do you know how to remain unmoving until the right action arises by itself? So in the next millennium, can we look at our grasping with compassion and take responsibility, not holding on even to concepts, being open to all the parameters of space and time. And it isn't about throwing away science and discovery, but valuing our curiosity and our desire to understand, using them wisely, contemplating and seeing what's true, what's useful, and what's of benefit to the world. Nor is it being frozen in greed, hatred, and delusion, or in any time, past, present, or future. The Buddha taught interdependence of all life through space and time, honoring the beings of all three times, of the past, the present, and the future. Time passes on unhindered. When we make mistakes, we can't turn the clock back, much as we'd like. All we can do is use the present well, and yet not hold on to it, aware of our lessons from the past, and open to the possibilities of the future. Often, as you know, we make resolutions, particularly New Year's resolutions, and I know for myself that I tend to make the same ones every year, um, and that not too much changes. <laughs> so next time you find yourself making a resolution to sit every day, or even just to take it down smaller, to be present for the entire sitting, or to be present for the entire walking, see if you can break it down even smaller, and just be with this breath and just be with this step, and the next step, and the next step. Taking it one moment at a time. Resolving to be with each moment, with compassion, and with kindness, and with humor, and with respect. I'd like to finish with this poem. Oh, I have two poems I'd like to read. The first one is about Two Kinds of Knowing by Rumi. There are two kinds of intelligence. One acquired as a child in school memorizes facts and concepts from books and from what the teacher says, collecting information from the traditional sciences as well as from the new sciences. With such intelligence, you rise in the world. You get ranked ahead or behind others in regard to your competence in retaining information. You stroll with this intelligence in and out of fields of knowledge, getting always more marks on your preserving tablets. There is another kind of tablet, one already completed and preserved inside you, a spring overflowing its spring box, a freshness in the center of the chest. This other intelligence does not turn yellow or stagnate. It's fluid, and it doesn't move from outside to inside through the conduits of plumbing learning. This second knowledge is a fountainhead, a knowing from within you moving out.
And so then I'll finish with this poem by Mary Oliver. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? Let's sit for a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.